I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 113. First things first, I want to tell everyone thank you so much for reaching out to me, for posting in the Facebook group and everything about this uh, last Sinister Sightings with my little crying episode about the signs for my mama. Just thank y'all and I know that so many of y'all can relate to me, and I hate that we have that in common, but I love the community that we do have, and it just makes us a family. Absolutely. One thing I've needed lately is a palate cleanser. We've talked about this before, where we go through stages where it's like, okay, enough murder for a minute. Like, I need something happy to listen to. Yeah. I started listening to this podcast called Even the Rich. And it's two friends who met while they were working a valet job. And so they've like seen like so much working for the rich. It's two seasons. I don't even know what the second season's about, to be honest, because I like I'm about to finish the first season. So I don't even know about the second one. But the first season is called From Diana to Megan, which you know I love the Royals. Like they are everything. Love the crown. Love the, like, literally. Last night, we were scrolling through Netflix, and Colby goes, oh, look, here's a show you'd love. And it was something about the royals. I was That's like, so funny. You're right. Um, But it talks about how, like, Princess Diana really paved the way for Meghan Markle. And yeah. how just the process of their dating to the wedding to the, what are they calling it? Mexic. That's probably not what it's called. But, like, Brexit, but with Meghan oh, Markle. Yeah. Yeah, You know, something. I can't remember what they're calling it. But anyway, but it talked about, too, the progression of child Diana to her death, even. And it's so eye-opening. Like, some of the stuff that I never knew about Diana, it was just like, let me just say, fuck Prince Charles. But, because the crown hasn't gotten that far yet, but we don't like Prince Charles. And by we, I mean me. Well, duh, he cheated. The whole fucking time. Oh, the whole time? The whole time. Like, courting, engaged, married, the whole time. Did she know? Yes. He denied it at first because, you know, why she, how she knew to, when she first got to the palace and, like, nobody knew where she was because they hadn't, like, literally, her family and his family knew where she was. She had a letter on her bed it was from Camilla being like, congratulations, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, how the fuck did she know? Wow. And then when she was going through wedding gifts, like unwrapping them, making her thank you list, whatever, there was a gift that was actually from him to Camilla. And it was like a necklace or a bracelet with the names that they call each other, like Fred and something like they call each other different names mm-hmm. so they can i guess so they can like talk about stuff mm-hmm. wow it had their names on it wow yep wow but anyway it's a comedy podcast and it's light i mean obviously there's some heavy moments clearly but it's it's really good very cool you know what else is very cool patreoners uh duh thank you so freaking much priscilla h from texas Haley c from new york Melissa H. from Oregon. Candy R. from Alberta, Canada. Melissa W. from Pennsylvania. And Sabra K. from Oklahoma. 
these people you just heard are getting some serious, not serious, nothing about us is serious, but they're getting a lot of bonus content over on Patreon. So if you want the bonus content to get you through the quarantine, you want episode shout out, all the things, head on over patreon.com slash the APC podcast. All right, enough chit chat. Let's jump right in. Okay, I need to give a trigger warning because my story is pretty heavy and the story does involve children. So trigger warning, fast forward to Donna's story if you need to. Mine's not heavy. Okay. So have you ever heard of the Moore murders? No, no. mm -mm. Okay. Well, the couple who are responsible for the Moore's murders are Ian Brady and Myra Henley. Myra Henley was so hated across the pond that people even stopped using that name, like, to name their kids. Dang. Some even say that Myra is one of the most heinous female serial killers to come out of England. Damn. How have I not heard about them? Right? Tell me more about the Moore's murders. All right. So, who is Myra? She was born in 1942, and she was raised in the working class area of Manchester. Now, I, okay, I found a shit ton of stuff on Wikipedia. Like, Wikipedia, this is like the most I've ever, well, it was through Murderpedia that was the Wikipedia. Anyway, this was like the most extensive article I've ever found on there. But I have a couple of other ones that I used, and all of the videos I watched. All of the other articles I read said that Myra had a very normal childhood, that her parents were great parents, like very normal. But what I found on Wikipedia slash Murderpedia said that her father was an alcoholic and her mother and her father were abusive to her. Mm. So I don't know how true that part is, but the rest I've seen in... Multiple different sources. So they lived in a very small house. It was a one-bedroom house. And so she had a bed inside of her parents' room. And she was an only child until she was about five years old. And then her baby sister named Maureen came into the picture. And remember her, this story has a lot of names, but she comes up later. So given that now they had two kids, nowhere really to put the kids... Myra had to go live with her grandmother, but her grandmother only lived basically a few houses down. It really, I mean, maybe a couple of blocks. Like, it was very, very close. From what I understand, you could literally see her grandmother's house from her parents' house. Oh, okay. She was still involved with her parents. You know, they saw each other all the time. So, it wasn't like, go live with your grandma, bye, you know. Yeah. Her dad had been in World War II, and he was just known kind of for being a hard ass. And he tried to raise Myra to be a hard ass as well. For instance, when she was eight, this kid came up to her on the street and hit her, scratched her cheeks, and she just ran away crying. Well, when she got home, her dad was like, no, you go and you punch that boy. And if you don't, basically he was going to spank her. And so she did. She left, beat the boy up and was like, you know, feeling herself after that. So her father raised her to be a fighter. He wanted her to stick up for herself. Well, Myra was a bit of a loner. 
she was good at school, but her grandma didn't make her go to class. And so she didn't have great grades, but when she was there, she did well. But again, she just never fucking went. Yeah. She didn't have a lot of friends. Again, she was kind of a loner. But she did have this one friend. His name was Michael Higgins, and he was a couple of years younger than her. And they would always go swimming together. She was a, she was his protector. You know, she would, if he got picked on, he she'd take up for him. You know, all those things. Well, one day, Michael asks Myra if she wants to go swimming. And this day, she didn't want to. She had shit to do. So she was like, no, you know, I'm, yeah, I don't want to go today. And he was like, all right. Well, he went swimming anyway. Only this time, he drowned. I feel like he is Thomas J., Damn. Right? Yes. Whew. If y'all haven't ever seen my girl, uh, Thomas J. comes to ask. Sorry. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, it's movies from like 1988. He comes to ask Veda if she wants to go climb trees. She says no. While he's gone, he gets stung by bees and dies. Yes. J- much like this. He comes, asks Myra, do you want to swim? She says no. He drowns. God, that is so hard. Well, and and she very much blamed herself, internalized that guilt. You know, she was only like 15, and she just had a really hard time with it. I can't even imagine. Well, at his funeral. If she breaks down and says he can't see without his glasses, I'm done. No. At his funeral, his mom took the rosary out of Michael's hands, because they were Catholic, And gave that rosary to Myra. Oh, God. Just, I feel like that was like the ultimate peace offering of, look, I don't blame you. This is not your fault. It was an accident kind of thing. Yeah. One of the YouTube videos I watched actually had a guy that was a kid swimming when they pulled his body out of the water. And he talked about, he was like, if she saw anything that I saw and felt that guilt, basically, like, It never left her because it has never left me, you know? Yeah. Well, I think in her way of coping with what happened to Michael, she turned to religion. And while she wasn't raised Catholic, she decided that she wanted to convert to Catholicism. She even became a godparent to one of Michael's nephews. She even talked her parents into letting her be baptized into the Catholic Church. Her parents wouldn't let her go to Catholic school, though, because they thought that, like, all they— taught at Catholic school was catechism and not actual school stuff. And I'm like, uh, she didn't go to class anyway, but whatever. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to skip ahead a little bit in her life to where she's 18, and she gets a job working as a typist. And while she's working there, she sees a guy that catches her eye, and his name is Ian Brady. Well, Ian Brady was not someone you would necessarily call a catch, He wasn't unfortunate looking, but he had a pretty extensive criminal record. And honestly, he didn't pay any attention to her. But she was infatuated by him. Well, he's a bad boy and he's playing hard to get. Hell yeah. True. Well, she, look, she had dates with other men, but she was still, like I said, just like only had eyes for Ian. He was up on a pedestal. Exactly. Well, She was almost like childlike in it because she had this diary and she would write things like, oh, Ian looked at me today. Oh, he was in a bad mood. I wonder why. You know, just like, I mean, 
I mean, she's she sounds like me. She's eighteen. Like you know, it's it's a it's a very like preteen type of like I don't know infatuation with him. Don't be judgy, Carrie Guy. If we could find my live journal from back in the day, holy fuck! Oh God, no one find it, please. <laughs> <laughs> find it, please. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Ian Brady. He's about four years older than Myra. And when he was born, he was born to a single mother. And his father's identity was really never confirmed. When Ian was born, he was born Ian Stewart. But, okay, so his mom said that this reporter for the Glasgow newspaper was actually his dad. And that that guy died like three months before Ian was born. But it's like, was that really his dad? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, were you just trying to be like, oh, his dad died, you know? Who knows? But it wasn't but a couple of months after Ian was born that his mom had to give him up to a family with the last name Sloan. And so then he became Ian Sloan. But when he was with the Sloans, his mom was still able to come and visit. So he didn't like lose all ties with her. Yeah. But it was when he was with the Sloan family that some of his more like sadistic tendencies really started to show. Which we know means he started torturing animals. Oh, God. I am not going to go into the details because it makes my stomach hurt. But just know, oy. But when he was about nine years old, he actually got into this school for, like, gifted kids, basically. And that's when he went from hurting animals to hurting kids that were smaller than him. Mm. And in his teens, he had a lot of run-ins with the law here and there. And when he was 17, he was on probation with the stipulation that he had to go live with his mother. So he went to live with her, and she had just married a guy by the name of Pat Brady, and so that's when he became Ian Brady. So this poor guy, by the time he's 17, he's had three different last names. He's bounced around from house to house, you know. Yeah. But he was showing signs very early on for sure of being a serial killer i mean by the time he was nine he had escalated to hurting people okay so now we're jumping back to where they're working at the same place and they've met she's in love with him he doesn't really care she exists but finally at a work christmas party they danced and the birds sang love happened so So this is the love you know, that's from Cinderella. Mm-hmm. So after the the work party, the Christmas thingy, he walked her home, and it's like, it's their moment. Yeah, this is the pivotal moment. The kiss of all kisses. He was so bad that he bruised her face with his teeth. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, did he try to eat her face? Like, how does that even happen? Slow down, Jeffrey Dahmer. In the world of shitty kisses that you know everybody has listening has had, when we've had, they never tried to eat my face. No. I mean, it may seem like it, but I didn't have bruises. Right. Okay. So. I mean, bruises elsewhere could be fun. But not on your face. I said elsewhere. Well, he had never kissed anybody before. No shame on somebody that's waiting a long time to kiss, but I mean, watch a movie. Figure it out. Practice uh, on your pillow. I was going to say, a uh, stuffed animal, pillow, something. Get a friend. Your hand. Fold a friend. 
<laughs> okay. Well, oh, YouTube's, it wasn't around back then. No, it wasn't. You're right. Well, Myra didn't care. She's like, I can work with this. So they went out on a date after that, and it was their first date. And look, Myra had been on dates with people, and she was just bored. She was just tired of the status quo. She was tired of all these guys. Well, when Ian took her out, they went to a movie, and they went and saw the Nuremberg Trials. And she said that she knew that she would never be bored with Ian like she was with all these other men. That sounds boring. But it was not the norm. Yeah. It's not a typical first date movie. So in her mind, she's like, this guy's different. I mean. Yeah, he different. Yeah. Part of their courting was that, like, on their lunch breaks and stuff, he would read to her and all the things. Okay, I like that. Yeah, but he was reading, like, Mind Comp to her. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was really into Nazis. But in her mind, she's like, oh, he can read German. You know, like, she's very rose-colored glasses type in this thing, you know? Yeah. And he's very much an extremist. But not, like, in the, like, skinhead kind of way, but kind of in the almost a skinhead kind of way. Yeah. Well, around this time, she starts almost kind of making herself... Aryan looking like dyes her hair blonde yeah but this story's not going like you think it is like it's not going to be like a it's not going to be like how you think it's going but he she was starting to morph herself into what he likes or what she thinks he likes at the very least yeah look and she's in it hook line and sinker but she wrote a letter to one of her friends from childhood and she said that One time, Ian had actually drugged her. Did she know what happened while she was drugged? I don't think so. But in the letter, she just kept going on about her, like, how much she loved him and how obsessed she was with him and blah, 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 blah. So, there was no, like, he hung the fucking moon. Yeah. Well, he knows he's got her. But he wants to test it out a little bit. So, he starts grooming her, really, to see what he can get away with, and what she'll help him with. So he starts planting seeds that he wants to do a robbery, but he wants her to be the getaway driver. Well, she doesn't have a driver's license. So what does she do? Gets a driver's license. Dang. So he's like, got her. Well, she rents a van, everything. They plan the robberies. They even, like, cased a couple of places. But they never went through with it because pretty sure he had no intention of ever actually doing it. He just was seeing what he could get away with it for his larger plan. Yeah. So he starts planting new seeds that he has a fantasy to commit the perfect murder. And, in fact, he ends up talking her into it. Oh, my gosh. So what their plan was, she was going to drive the van, because she had gotten a van. She was going to drive the van. He was going to follow behind her on the motorcycle. And whenever they saw someone that they wanted to be the first victim, he would flash his lights at her so she could pull off and try to get him. Why she got to do all the work? Because it's 1963, and hell, it still even happens now, where people feel safer when a female approaches them. You know, if you're a kid and a female approaches you, you're going to be like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. But if a guy is, you're going to be a little more, like, on guard. True. I wasn't thinking luring them into the van. I was thinking like, oh, oh get them. And, and yeah, that's no. why I'm like, Mm-mm. what the fuck? Mm-mm. Okay. 
So it's July 1963, and they're doing their thing, riding down, and they see this young girl walking down the street, and he, of course, does his little signal like, hey, 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 stop. Well, it's actually somebody that Myra recognizes. Her name's Pauline Reed, and she recognizes her because Pauline is 16 years old and is actually a classmate of Myra's sister, Maureen. Oh, my gosh. So Pauline is... Her guard's definitely down because, oh, okay, Mm -hmm. that's Maureen's sister. Well, Myra says, hey, look, I was out on the moors, and I fucking lost a glove. It's a very expensive glove. Can you please come help me find it? And Pauline's like, sure, why not? So she gets in the van, and they head off to the moors, which are kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's like land, like spacious the foothills type thing. Yeah, like grassland. Yeah. Savannas. Yeah. Okay. Dictionary.com. <laughs> so when they get to their spot in the moors, Ian pulls up on his motorcycle and she's like, oh, hey, Pauline, this is this is my boyfriend, blah, 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 blah. He came to help look too. So Ian takes Pauline out to look while Myra stays in the van. While Myra's in the van, Ian walks back up he says he's coming back up there to get a shovel that he had hidden away before. And he tells Myra, like, okay, come help me. And when she gets there, Pauline is dead. Her clothes are undone and all disheveled. And so she knew that Ian had sexually assaulted her. Oh, my gosh. He had cut her throat. And together, they buried her in this shallow grave. On their way back home from the moors, they put, you know, they just loaded his motorcycle in the van and they, they're riding together. And they see Pauline's sister and brother out on the streets looking for her. Oh my gosh. Is that not like just the ultimate? Like, holy crap. Yes. So six months later, they'd gotten away with it. So they decide it's time to do it again. Same thing, they're out on the hunt, and they see this 12-year-old boy. His name is John Kilbride, and they see him at the market. So they decide, okay, it's him. And this time they had gotten, they'd rented a car. And again, Myra's the one that's luring the victim in. And so she's like, oh, hey, can you help me get these boxes in the car? Very Ted Bundy before Ted Bundy was even a twinkle in anybody's eye. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. He's probably alive by now. But the point is, <laughs> like, very much a ruse by him. And the whole time I'm reading this, because it seems clearly, now this is the second victim that they've gotten someone by asking for help. They've gotten a child by asking for help. And I know I've said this before on an episode, and I cannot remember where I originally heard it, but... An adult is never going to need a child's help. And, I mean, I know we're talking to all adults on this, you know, listening to this podcast. So it's like preaching to the choir. But, like, I don't know. Like, I just, to instill no, that. we still have some, like, 16-year-olds and stuff. And that's that's the age that would be vulnerable, too. Like, they're driving at a gas station and it's like. This older man. That's yeah. true. That's true. Well, and I think that's something to instill in our kids is if you have a an adult that's asking you, come help me look for my dog. Can you help me load these boxes? Can you help me come find this? No, 
an adult doesn't need a child's help. Yeah, I never thought of it that way until you said it. She also said, hey, if you help me with these boxes, and I'll take you home. So not only did he help her with the boxes, now he's in the car. Yeah, wow. So good. I like, know, I know. So manipulative. Well, I guess who else is in the car? Ian. Oh, gosh. So they drive John to the Moors. Can you imagine when he realizes that... He's not going home? Yes. Oh. When they get to the Moors, Ian takes him away. And just like with Pauline, he sexually assaults him, tries to slit his throat, but then ends up strangling him with his own shoelace. Oh, my gosh. You know, the police, they're searching all over for John. I just think they didn't make the connection that it was the same person with Pauline and John because it's such different victimology. And I don't even know if victimology was a word in 1963, but it certainly made no sense. You know, yes, their throats were slit. And yes, both had sexual assault, but one's a... 12-year-old boy and one's a 16-year-old girl. That's very different. Yeah. Well, and two, even if they were the same age, then being a male and female, both being sexually assaulted, Mm -hmm. back then, that would be like not even in their thought process that it would be the same person. Right. And that's the thing with Ian is that a lot of stuff speculates. Some things say they think he was gay, but... A lot of things seem to speculate that he was bisexual. That might be the reason behind, you know, having Pauline and John. But it still continued with the different victimology. And just to tell, like, of course, it can be argued that Myra was kind of just his driver and had been manipulated and all the things. I want to make a point to say that a month after John Kilbride was murdered, she rented a car and went out to the burial sites to make sure they hadn't been disturbed. So she's making a conscious decision there herself to go check on these graves to make sure that, you know, and so obviously there are ways to explain that. But I, I mean, she played a part in this. About eight months after the murder of John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, he had just had his 12th birthday Four days before this, he was walking to his grandma's house when Myra pulls up and the same thing they did with John, she asks for help loading some boxes. And again, I'll take you home after you help me. Once he's in the car, she's like, hey, we're actually going to go over to the moors because I lost a glove. So still, again, with these boxes and the gloves and it's like, Jesus, okay. What kind of fucking glove was this? Right. So I know this is like, little to no consolation, but I just feel like at least maybe Keith didn't know, like, wait, we're not going to my house. You know, like he didn't have that, that fear didn't set in for him on the drive like it did John. Yeah. Well, when they get there, of course, who's waiting? Ian. And he did what Ian does. He took Keith Bennett, sexually assaulted him and strangled him. And just as they always do, they buried him. After the murder of Keith Bennett, they lay dormant for about another six months before they decided it was time to kill again. Myra and Ian went to some fairgrounds the day after Christmas. Oh my gosh. And they saw a little girl named Leslie Ann Downey. She was 10 years old. 
And they noticed that she was, you know, she's standing by one of the rods and they're like, wait, she by herself. And so they're carrying some things. Imagine that boxes. (laughs) And one glove. One elusive glove. But when they're walking by her, they intentionally drop some of the boxes. And they're like, oh my gosh, can you please help us carry some of these to the car? Look, we have so many. We can't carry them all. (laughs) And they're like, better yet, can you help us get them to the car? And then go with us to our house and help us unload them. So Leslie Ann agrees. And this is the first victim that they actually took back to their house. Oh, wow. All the other ones they had taken to the moors and buried them in the moors. But Leslie Ann, they took her home. So they had more time with her. Mm. So I'm not going to go into details, but they spent more time sexually assaulting her, taking pictures, all the things, until they eventually strangled her. The very next morning... They took her to the moors and buried her naked with her clothes at her feet. Oh, my gosh. Well, while all this is going on, you know, the times of the murders, Myra's sister, Maureen, meets a guy by the name of David Smith, and they fall in love, and they decide to get married. The family's against the marriage, He has a couple of run-ins with the law, and he has a a reputation of violence. Mm. And so Myra's just not really feeling him. She's like, I don't really, you know, I'm not, I don't really support this. And then- How's she not going to support that? I know, I know. Those in glass houses, Myra. Their mother was against it, too, because Maureen was actually seven months pregnant. And so, you know, you got to remember, 1964, everybody's like, Mm -hmm. this is, you, you know, you can't do this kind of thing. However, it's interesting, though, because you think they'd want her to get married, you know, but whatever. They end up getting married, and not long after, Ian is, you know, Ian embraces it, and he's like, look, why don't we all go on this trip to some lake, get to know each other kind of thing. And very quickly, a bromance was formed between Ian and David Smith. David was young. I mean, he was like 15 years old. And so, yes. Holy shit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so David was just enamored with this older guy. You Mm -hmm. know, they both kind of had some, I don't don't think David, David wasn't as extreme as Ian, but they had, you know, he thought it was so cool that Ian read all that Nazi stuff and he could speak German and, you know, just this kind Mm -hmm. of the same shit that won over Myra. Yeah. Well, and they both have violent tendencies. Exactly. So they're, again, they're fast friends. They start talking of robbing banks and all the things. And man, robbing banks is his fucking foreplay. Also, during the time of all of the murders, there was a girl. Her name was Patricia Hodges and she was 11 years old. And she lived basically next door to Myra and Ian. I do want to say that they moved around a lot because they were rehoused, like it said, as part of the post-war slum clearance. Like, And I think that they were in some government housing. So they moved a lot. Yeah. So, I, I mean... I mean, not that like a, any type of like geographic really understanding of a serial killer patterns was really un- even understood back then, but just know that they moved around a couple of times. But 
at this point, this 11-year-old girl lived near them, and she often went on their trips to the moors with them. Wow. But they never heard her because it would be easily traced back to them. Yeah. And I just think, can you imagine if your little 11, 12-year-old Patricia and the people that you had been taking all these trips to the moors with were killing children out on the moors? Like, you're in their age range. Mm -hmm. Like, you are right there. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. And do you even understand that as an 11 Like, at what point in your life do you go, wait, I could have died? Yeah. I can't imagine. So that brings us to their last victim. Remember how I said that there are reports that Ian was gay or bisexual? Well, the last victim, his name was Edward Evans. And this situation was a little different. Myra drove Ian to Manchester Central Station. and She waited outside in the car while he went in to find his next victim. He meets Edward Evans. And again, it's said that it was that Edward left with him because it was meant to be a sexual rendezvous kind of thing. Mm. And so they came out to the car and he says, oh, hey, this is Myra. This is my sister. She's going to drive us back to the house. And so he was, okay, cool. Because again, it, it's, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it is what it is. It's a hookup. Yeah. So when they get back to the house, Ian says, hey, go get David, mm. the brother-in-law. Wow. Like, he thinks, like, oh, oh go get David. Show him yeah. what I've got. Show him what I'm about to do. <laughs> yeah. Well. Welcome to the family. Fuck. Right. So when David gets there, Ian starts hitting Edward with, like, the flat end of an axe. Holy shit. Starts beating him. And then takes an electrical cord and strangles him to death. Oh, my God. But... He was too heavy for Ian to just load up. So he was like, David, man, you got to help me, like, roll him up and take him upstairs. Because they're not just going to take him out of the house, this dead body. They got to put him up and then oh, we'll go bury him in a little while. So, so, sorry, did he not sexually abuse Edward since David was there? Well, they were alone for a little while while Myra went to get David. Mm. So, I'm, I mean... This is purely conjecture, but I'm guessing they had sex during that time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't know. Hell, it might have been consensual at that right. point. Right. That's what I'm saying. It was supposed yeah. to be like a Well, David is like, "The fuck just happened? Like, I didn't sign up for fucking murder. We were talking about Robin Banks. Like, the hell is happening?" Right. But he just watched Ian Beat Edward with an axe and then strangle him. So he yeah. is not going to go against Ian at all. Right. So he's like, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I'll help you move the body. Right. But like, hey, I'm going to go and then I'm going to come back and then we'll, I'll help you get rid of him later. And Ian was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> oh, God. So David like <laughs> on two wheels goes home and is like, oh, my God, Maureen, wake up. This is what the fuck just happened. Like, what do we do? Yeah. So they go down the street to the payphone and call the police. And they take a screwdriver and a knife with them because they're so scared that Ian is going to come after them. Oh, my God. Because he left that 
like they stay at that phone booth with the knife and the screwdriver to protect themselves because oh they're gosh. so scared to go back home because Ian obviously knows where they live. Yeah. So when he calls police, he tells them everything. He's like, this is what just happened. I don't know what the fuck is going on kind of thing, but they're armed. They're dangerous. Help, but be careful. So the police are like, all right, okay, okay, okay. They're armed. We got to be stealthy about this. So they get this bread guys like coveralls and send a police officer up to the door looking like he's a bread guy. And they're like, oh, we don't need bread. And the guy's like, it's cool. I'm a cop. Let me in. (laughs) So Myra says, okay, okay, you can search the house. Also, that gives me an idea. If you ever have to hire me a stripper, please make him dress up as like a breadsmith before he strips. Coveralls and all. You got it. I mean, carbs and cocks. It's on brand. So she lets the police in to search the house. And when they get upstairs, they find this locked door. And they're like, all right, let me in there. And she's like, oh, actually, I don't have the key. I left it at work. Darn. Oh, gosh. And they're like, cool, we'll take you to work to get the key. And she's like, oh, um, so Ian's like, just here, let him in. And so they open the door, obviously. and. They find Edward, the body. Oh, gosh. So they arrest Ian because that's who said, you know, mm-hmm. David said killed him. They So they arrest him on suspicion of murder, but they don't arrest Myra. Because a woman can never be capable of murder. Of course not. Right. Her dainty little hands. <laughs> well, the police start looking around the house. I forget how it worked, but it was almost like a fucking escape room puzzle. (laughs) They found this thing that said PB. So they went to this bookcase and they're like, oh, there's a book with PB. And then they opened it and they found a left luggage ticket, which, by the way, had to Google that because what the fuck is left luggage? Why you got a left and not a right? Right. Apparently it's Twix. So (laughs) left luggage is just like at bus station and like airports and like terminals like that, like the lockers where you can leave luggage Oh. For your next trip kind of thing. I've seen it on Jason Bourne. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, who has that many clothes? Well, it's usually nefarious things, right? I mean, on all the movies it is. It is, right? And in this case it is too. Oh, shit. So they go to all the places with all the left luggage things and they're trying to figure out like, okay, what does this go to? And when they find it, it is a suitcase and they hit pay dirt. It has... Nine different photographs of a young, naked girl with a scarf tied around her mouth. And not only do they have pictures that they later identify as Leslie Ann Downey. Oh, gosh. They have a 13-minute recording, audio recording, of basically the torture that Leslie Ann lived through. Oh, my gosh. Her begging for help. But here's the kicker. In that audio... You hear Myra. Oh, shit. Got her. Yeah. So they're looking around the house more. And in this old exercise book, they find the name John Kilbride in it. And they're like, wait, what? They did both of them? Like, they would have never put that together had that not been the case. So they're looking some more. And they find this all these photographs because... Ian fancied himself a photographer. So they find, I mean, and a lot of them were like mundane pictures. It was 
Myra on the moors, like holding the dog. And it was their dog's like life progression from like a puppy to an older dog. And so they were like, okay, let's figure out how old the dog was in these pictures, where on the moors these pictures were taken. That might lead us to some bodies and to know who it is based on the time frame. Okay. So they take her dog and put the dog under like general anesthesia because what they were doing was they were trying to look at the teeth to tell the dog's age and they needed to put it under general anesthesia. Well, apparently the dog had a, a kid, quote, kindy condition that nobody knew it had and the dog actually died oh, under no. the anesthesia. Myra lost her shit. She was calling the police murderers and, you know, and it's just such an interesting, I don't know if juxtaposition is the word I'm looking for, but, you know, you're sitting in this interview room because of the murder of children and you're calling the police murderers because your dog died under general anesthesia, you know, just, yeah. just her, which, and we all do that. You know, we can hear and watch all these murder documentaries and podcasts and all the things about people. But then whenever you bring in an animal, it's like, oops, skip those details. You know? Yeah. I mean, I literally did it at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. But it's just so interesting, you know, that she was, I mean, it was like it was the only thing that she loved. That and Ian, you know, it is kind of worse or spooky to think of that she does have that emotion and she can feel that way. True. About her dog. And she's so like blase about the lives that they've taken. Of children. Yeah. So the police are searching the moors and they find this arm bone like sticking out of the dirt. And at first they thought it was John Kilbride. I'm not sure why they jumped to that conclusion, but they thought it was. And then they realized that it actually was Leslie Ann Downey. So they continue searching and five days later, they find the body of John Kilbride. So there is a ton that I'm skipping because again, we don't care about them. They're the murderers. We don't care. But basically, Ian was kind of like, yeah, right, I did it. And she was like, I am innocent. And then they were both convicted to life sentences. They tried, They stayed in contact for a little while, tried to get married, but they weren't allowed to. And then eventually, they got mad at each other and quit talking. Wow. Well, she, for a long time, maintained her innocence. But eventually, police released her full confession. Because she had confessed to the whole thing. But she, again, had been saying she was innocent. So finally, she was like, all right, all right, I did it. And agreed to take them to the remaining graves. So it wasn't until 1987, when she started taking them to where the bodies were buried, that they found Pauline Reed's body. Wow. And it was just like a hundred yards from where Leslie Ann Downey was found. So it was like, it was right there. I mean, I know a hundred yards is like, fo it's a football field, but yeah, it's like, but it was right there. Yeah, gosh. But still to this day, Keith Bennett's body has never been found. Oh my gosh. And I watched this video on YouTube and it had his mom, his poor mom interviewed and how she and her family still go out there sometimes looking for him. And 
it just crushed my soul. But again, they still are looking for him. His is the only body that hasn't been found. Both Ian and Myra both have now passed away. She didn't die until like 2002 or something. She was in jail for a long time. But I had to tell you, this is the very last thing I have to tell you. So, do you remember, I think it was like episode 34, we talked about the West, the couples, the West, Fred and Rose. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Rose and Myra were in the same prison together. Whoa. And guess what? Wait. They had a lesbian affair. What? Yes. Oh, my. <laughs> Damn. Right? Well, they had a lot to bond over. How about Rose broke up with her because she said that Myra was too manipulative and, like, psycho. Wow. Like, how manipulative and psycho do you have to be for Rose West to break up with you for it? Wow. I mean, she never left Fred. Damn. How bad's it got to be? Damn. That is crazy. I was like, why has this article got something about the West in it? What? 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 <laughs> Holy shit. Like, it was like my world's collided, you know? Yeah. Like, because again, you know, you hear these stories, but you don't think about them being housed in the same prisons together, right. you know? And so it's like your worlds collide, you know? Yeah. But again, how bad did it have to be for Rose West to break up with her? Wow. And that's all I got. Whew, this was a heavy story. It really was. I'm glad to get it off my chest. Bless all those kids' hearts. Oh, and, and their families and how long it took. I mean, and poor Keith's family still, I mean, they've got closure and that they know that they killed him. Yeah, he was a victim of the Moore's murders. But they don't have the body. And it's it's like in that documentary I watched on YouTube, it said like his mother says she won't rest until she finds his body. And it's like, I just don't want that poor lady to die without having her son you know yeah people if you have to kill if you have to be the getaway driver for someone to like you don't they're never gonna like you they're using you yes put the car keys down it's only gonna get worse well i hope yours isn't as heavy definitely not okay so you know i love digging up local stuff i never knew about well, Pascagoula delivers for us again, and if y'all don't remember, I did a story in April about the Pascagoula River that was also known as the Singing River. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a completely different kind of story, but still, Pascagoula. You must really be aching to go down there to the casinos. I think I am. I really think I am. But let me just tell you, I will not fucking stand in line to go to a casino. No! Mm-mm. I won't even stand in line for the damn buffet. Oh, hell no. One, because you know all the good uh, slot machines are going to be taken. Well, picture it. Pascagoula, Mississippi, October 11th, 1973. Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker are the main peeps in this story. Charlie was 42 and Calvin was 19 at the time. Charlie was a foreman at F.B. Walker & Sons Shipyard and he had recently hired Calvin to work for him. 
He actually knew Calvin, though, because he was friends with his dad, and Calvin and his brother had pretty much grown up with Charlie's oldest son. So there's still history there, but he just hired him at this job. Okay. So they were friends, now co-workers, and Calvin had actually moved in and agreed to rent a room from Charlie, because I think he was technically from Jones County, uh, so he had moved down to Pascagoula to Jackson County to make some money to go back and get engaged and get married. Okay. So they worked, lived, and hung out together. Basically us. God bless their souls. <laughs> well, after they got finished with their first day of work together, it was around 4 p.m. Charlie was like, you know what? Let's go fishing. Like, you did good. It's going to be like... This is going to be a good thing, you know? So they went several different places, but the fish just were not biting. Cows must have been laying down. (laughs) Well, Charlie had one more place that he wanted to go try. And he was like, if they don't bite there, we'll go, you know, we'll give up. We'll go home. Well, this place was an old abandoned shipyard. And it was across the river and a little north of Ingalls Shipyard. So that's a name like, locals would know. And it still exists. Yeah. So this abandoned shipyard had a pier where they set up their poles and everything. And as luck would have it, Charlie did catch something. But it basically just took the bait. So while he was reaching back to get another shrimp to put on his line as bait, he heard this, like, hissing or zipping sound. He described it as sounding like steam coming out of a pipe. Okay. Well, at the same time, Calvin saw some blue lights reflecting across the water. So he was like, well, shit, we're going to jail. Because because he had seen some signs posted. So he thought, shit, we got busted for trespassing or something. And also, Charlie had been drinking a few after work. So, you know, he was just like, oh, shit, like, whatever. He's 19. Yeah. You know, so he's just like, oh, fuck. Well, they both turn around, and that's when they're really able to focus their eyes more and figure out it wasn't a cop car at all. And it was actually hovering two or three feet above the ground. And, like, less than 15 yards away from them. There were two blue flashing lights, and it was on the part closest to the guys. And so that's what made it so hard in the beginning to focus on anything. Because we've all seen the cars at night, and you're like, really? I can't see shit. When they're doing a roadblock, and I'm like, I'm just going to drive slowly and hopefully not hit anyone. I think you're motioning me to come forward, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Like, I'm not drunk, but I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. So they were finally able to tell that the object was oblong. So kind of like a blimp-ish, football-ish thing with a small dome on top. And Charlie said that the craft was at least 30 feet long and 8 feet tall. That's pretty fucking big. Mm-hmm. And it was completely silent other than that hissing sound at the very beginning, like when it just touched down. Well, they were probably staring in disbelief or fear farting. 
But then they saw three creatures come out of the craft. There wasn't really a door. It was just kind of an opening that wasn't there before. And then it was. And as it opened, it revealed an ultra bright light that was almost blinding. And the creatures exited the craft. And they were also hovering above the ground, but had a walking motion, but they weren't touching the ground. Charlie described the creatures to the Mississippi press as being like four and a half to five feet tall, because he was like five, seven, five, eight. And so he was like, they're shorter than me, you know, like blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, he was just trying to give a general height. He said they had a stocky build and bullet-shaped heads, and they did not have any necks, which I feel attacked, sir. (laughs) I mean, some people just don't have long necks and a double chin that connects their head to their shoulders. I was about to say, some of us have necks. It's just hidden by an extra layer of chin. It's protective measures here. Well, then they had slits for eyes and mouth, and then... Like, cone picture, like a snowman, like a carrot coming out of a snowman for a Mm -hmm. nose and ears. But kind of like mixed between snowman and like a Frankenstein kind of like. Yeah. That's what their ears look like and their nose. Okay. Okay. He said their complexion was gray and they had wrinkled skin that reminded him of an elephant. They had round feet, and they moved very robotically. And also, let me just say, Charlie said that the slits for eyes were so wrinkly that he couldn't even tell if they had eyes. And the slit for the mouth was, like, really wrinkly, too. Well, maybe they were just old. I don't know, but it was gross to me, like, thinking about, like, all the wrinkles and, like, you not being able to even, like tell if they had like a pupil yeah at that point the men are too shocked to even move and so they can't run the creatures just kept moving towards them and then there they were right in front of the men and they reached out and grabbed them with pincher type claws and right when they grabbed them it basically paralyzed their whole body except their eyes And then they lifted them into the craft with them. Two of them had a hold of Charlie and one had Calvin by like a firm grasp on the arm. And both men just said it felt like they floated up into the craft. Oh, God. When the men were inside the craft, they said it was super bright and it kind of drained out any details if there were any. So I picture like when people die in a movie and they like go to heaven or like whatever they wake up and it's just like all white and it's Mm -hmm. like that blinding light and they can't see anything really but like also with the little light that well not the little it's usually big the light that they use like at a dentist office or in surgery yeah the the handle that they move around yes so you can't see anything because it's so bright oh my god that's so weird that i literally i'm literally about to bring up the dentist office oh yes Awkward. Okay. They were both on an examination table and then probed. Ooh. However, it wasn't anal probing or anything like that. It was kind of how I feel at the dentist office 
where they have to take x-rays. Both men said it was like an electronic eye about the size of a deck of cards came from the ceiling and it would take pictures at different angles, like once by their head, click, once by their feet, click on top, under, all the things. While the eye was probing or scanning or whatever, the creatures were holding the men still, but would adjust their bodies accordingly to the angle the eye needed. Both men said they felt completely powerless and helpless. And another detail Charlie recalls is a loud mechanical buzzing sound that the eye scanner probe thing made. And oh God, can you imagine being like so scared? All you can move are your eyes. And like all you can do is focus on this loud buzzing sound on something that you can't even comprehend that exists. Right. Well, then Calvin recalls that there was some shuffling noise and then a more feminine creature came in and she was shorter than the rest, but she had like regular fingers. She didn't look like the robotic creatures before. Well, she was getting ready to do her own examination. And first she reached up and pinched Calvin's cheek. Which I thought was very interesting because he was the younger Mm -hmm. of the two. And so that's such a thing. Like, if they were observing people in the South, it's like, what do you ants do to the younger people? It's like, oh, they're going to pinch your cheek, you know? And it's like, because that's such a weird thing for her to do. Well, then after she pinched his cheek, she took one of her fingers and poked it in his mouth. Ooh. Did you wash your hands? (laughs) Then down his throat. And then basically, he said, went past the thing that hangs down. The uvula? Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, that's literally what he said. Past the thing that hangs down. (laughs) And basically tried to go out his nasal cavity. But it started really hurting, and he started choking. And he said at this point, like, he remembers blood coming out of his nose. Well... At this moment, his whole body got super tense and he was freaking out because, again, it was now hurting. Yeah. And he said then he heard her telepathically speak to him and she said, don't be afraid. We're not going to hurt you. Likely story. (laughs) And that was that. The creatures escorted them off of the craft and back onto the bank. The whole ordeal lasted about 40 minutes. Charlie was on the ground, but he was completely aware of his surroundings, but he could not move his legs, really. He said they were very weak. Calvin, he found him, like he saw him. He was standing with his arms lifted to the sky, and he was like screaming, and he didn't seem to have the ability to lower his arms. So Charlie said that Calvin was like, oh my God, he's frozen in fear. He is like in shock. What the fuck? So he was determined to make it over to him. So he just started crawling because he couldn't move his legs yet. Like he couldn't stand up yet. Well, finally, the craft just went straight up and disappeared. And Charlie was able to get up and go over to Calvin And he, you know, was able to, like, shake him and, like, get him to stop screaming. And he was like, I can't move my hands. I can't put my hands down. And, like, finally was able to, like, get him to put his arms down. 
And it was like nothing had happened. And they're just standing there like, was that all a dream? What just happened? Like, So it was like the further the craft, quote unquote, got away from him, the pull of like hold his arms up and all that mm-hmm. stopped. Yeah. And like Charlie was able to get up yeah. and all of that. Well, Calvin was like, let's not tell a soul about this. They're going to think we're nuts. But Charlie was like, no, we've got to tell someone. But first, let me take a few shots of liquor. Well, when they got to Calvin's car, his passenger window was busted, which wasn't busted before. And they're like, what the fuck? You know? And again, it's an abandoned shipyard and stuff. So it's like not probably the best part. However, it's still like if there were people around, they probably would have heard them. You know? Yeah. Well, then they tried to crank it up and it wouldn't crank for several minutes. And Calvin said he had just purchased that car two months before this whole encounter. Well, finally, they got it to work. The men were driving, and they passed a gas station, and Charlie was like, Calvin, pull into the gas station. I got to use the phone. So he called Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, and a sergeant there was like, UFO, don't know her. Call your local sheriff. So they called the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, and Charlie was like, okay, you're going to laugh, but something happened to us. And the police captain, Glenn Ryder, was the one who answered the call. And he was like, okay, well, go ahead because I'm busy. And so just tell me what the fuck happened. Yeah. Because it's like 11 o'clock at night. So he's like, what the fuck? It's 11 o'clock at night. Do you know where your children are? <laughs> exactly. So Charlie told him that they were picked up by a UFO. And the captain basically doubled over in laughter. And Charlie's like... I told you, you were going to laugh. And he's like, no, no, no. But just stay there. Like, stay at the gas station. I'll send someone out. Because ultimately, he thought they were drunk. Right. You know, and so he's like, they don't need to be driving anywhere. So he sent a deputy there, and they did a field sobriety test on both, and they passed. And so the police officer was like, well, just follow me to the station to make some statements. Well, they separated both men and interviewed them. And Calvin... Tried to say, like, he had just passed out after they touched him to take him to the craft. And he just didn't really want to talk about it. He was so scared of the stigma, you know. But Charlie, on the other hand, was given a very detailed overview of everything. The stories were matching up, like, on how it started, like, some of the stuff inside, you know. But how Calvin was saying it's like, I mean, I kind of remember this, but, like... I was kind of passed out, you know, and yeah. honestly, he was young. So, I mean, if something traumatic happens, like if someone comes down and fucking paralyzes your ass, you're like, fainting goat, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, what the fuck, you know? Yeah. So the police officers were like, all right, well, now that we got him here, let's just rise him up. Like, let's just keep asking him questions and they're going to buckle. Like, they're fucking lying. You know, a fucking UFO? Yeah, right. Right. Well, so the captain's like, all right, they're either lying or they really believe what happened. But if they are lying, we're going to arrest their asses because, you know, like... It's a waste of resources. Yeah. Absolutely. So they put them in a room together then. And cutting edge, they put a secret recorder in there too. Mm. So they're like, all right, they're thinking if they're lying, these, you know, the guys are going to be like, 
man, these cops are so fucking gullible. We got them. We got them. You know? Well, the guys didn't do anything like that. They were both super fucking upset. And everyone agreed that, like, they couldn't make up that kind of fear. Yeah. And so some of the conversation went like this. So Calvin, he was like, I can't sleep like this. I am damn near crazy. Well, Charlie was like, well, Calvin, when they brought you out, when they brought me out of the thing, damn it, I like to have never in hell got you straightened out about the whole arm thing. Yeah. And then Calvin, like his his voice was like raising. Like you could tell he was like getting worked up. Like he yeah. was so frantic. He said, my damn arms, my arms. I remember they just froze up and I couldn't move. It was like I stepped on a damn rattlesnake. Damn. And Charlie was like, well, they didn't do me that way. And so, like, they were both just, like, talking about it. Like, it happened. And it wasn't, like, trying to get their story straight. It was, like, comparing battle wounds and all of this. And finally, Charlie left the room. And so Calvin was left in the room. And he was talking to himself just because he was so, so distraught over everything. And he told himself, it's so hard to believe. Oh, God, it's awful. I know there's a God up there. I know there's a God up there. Oh, Like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, the captain said it was actually Calvin's reaction that really convinced everyone, like, okay, no, something bad happened. Because also, when they were, you know, having the conversation and stuff, the deputies and the captain could hear Calvin just begging Charlie to like not really talk about it. He's and he was pleading. He said, Don't talk to him, Charlie. Don't talk to him. Those people will come back and get us. They don't want us to talk. Oh my God. Can you, know, you imagine that oh, fear? God. Well, so both men were like, give us polygraph test. Like, we are telling the truth. This happened. And they took them and both test said that their accounts were truthful and everything. Well, again, everyone was like, okay, let's just keep this hush-hush then. Because they didn't know that they had secretly recorded them or anything like that. So he's like, just keep it hush-hush. Like, don't, you know, don't say anything. Don't don't do anything. And, like, really, they're having to say this to Charlie because Calvin's like, fuck, this never happened. Right. Well, within a few days, the story was leaked went global. So soon, the men had to be sent to Keesler to be checked out and make sure that they weren't radioactive or anything. Well, Charlie relished in the spotlight, and he rode that media wave and even went on Johnny Carson. What the fuck? Yes. Then he published a book in 1983, but again, like, never got famous for it and never got money for it. And he still, like, worked his job, did his thing. It was just, like, he was proud to be chosen by the aliens or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, Calvin was completely different. He told the media that he had passed out at the beginning of the whole affair and couldn't remember anything. So, like, don't talk to me. Yeah. And later in 2018, he told the Sun Herald that was the only lie he ever told because he did remember what happened. And he said that he was so afraid that the aliens had infected him with something that when they got home from the sheriff's department, he took a bath in bleach. Oh my God. And he like 
throughout, like he put his clothes in a bag, you know, burned those mm-hmm. and everything. And he said he was just so scared that he would infect other people and stuff. It wasn't really about him. It's like who he would like cross contaminate. Well, within just a few short weeks, he left and he went back to Jones County, got married and he started working in the oil field industry. And if someone recognized him at a job, he would quit. He did not want to be recognized as that. He wanted to be low key. He wanted to be a family man. He wanted to be married, you know, be the provider and have kids. And so, like, I feel like that just makes this so much more truthful. Like, he didn't want any of this. None of the fame, none of the glory, none of the money. Yeah. Well, finally, in his 60s, he slowly came out of his hiding and and in 2018 he published a book of his own and I listened to an interview he did on a podcast called the Truth Seeker podcast and Charlie and Calvin are considered pioneers in the UFO abduction history like the Pascagoula abduction is pretty famous in UFOlogy really yeah and I had no idea I mean either they were probed. Not anally, you said though, yeah, right? Yeah, not okay. anally. Before, there weren't a lot of encounters. But before this, a lot of people hadn't claimed to be examined or anything like that. It was just like they made contact or whatever. But this was like, no, okay. It's kind of like they're evolving. They're, they're leveling up. Well, of course, they're skeptics, and they called them liars. They said that Charlie had, you know, been drinking and all of that, which he had, but he's also in his 40s and a good old boy. So if he's had a few drinks and he wasn't driving and stuff, like, it doesn't mean that he's, like, sloshed and all of that. He could still be functional. Yeah. Another person said that Charlie had an episode of sleep paralysis with hypnagogic, don't know what that is, hypnagogic hallucinations. And then because Calvin was close to him and so young, he was just highly suggestible. And I'm like, no, because I like, I can understand like Calvin going along with some of it. Okay. But like they each were interviewed separately and it wasn't like they had a lot of time to get stories correct. True. And they like were interviewed separately a lot. And then when they talked about it, they they kept just, like, talking about certain things. Like, it was just blowing their minds, too. Like, they were like, oh, my God, that door. How did we get in? Like, that door, I've never seen something like that before. Because, like I said, it wasn't there, but then it was. And it was more like a hatch than a door. Just like what we see on, like, the Jetsons and oh, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, it slides in, slides out. So it just blew their mind and... I just feel like you couldn't suggest all of that to Calvin. Right. And he's like, I I just, I don't know. And like, they were close, but not like father and son close. Yeah. And if Calvin didn't want to go through this and didn't want to be known as this person, why would he have been like, okay, let me actually tell you that this happened. He would have been like, no, you know, and if he was lying Later on, he wouldn't have quit his job to to be like, okay, no, that's not me. He would have been like, yeah, that's me. Okay. Or like, yeah, 
it was fake or whatever. But it's like he had that trauma that he was so fucking scared. He was paralyzed and he fainted and all of this stuff. And it's like, I can't talk about it. And if you're going to talk about this, like, I can't go back there. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm gone. You know? Well, there was an aviation journalist and a UFO skeptic named Philip Class. And his biggest argument was that their exams were, like, their polygraph test were given by a young operator who was just out of school. And so he really wasn't like, certified enough to do it because this was, like, his first test and all of so that. So why would they get somebody that's that green to do it Yeah, for this big of a thing? Well, and also, I mean, if he went through the school, like, shouldn't he be able to Yes, but with it? experience comes wisdom. So yes. yes and no. Like, yes, but also it's, I don't know. I feel like that is a stretch to be like, he was very young. Now, it's different if you're like, this guy's a serial Israel Keys yeah. going against a green polygrapher. Like, okay, then. Like, that guy is manipulative to the nth degree. True. But two people who came in frantic were like freaking the fuck out. And they're like, no, we will take the test. Like, we will do whatever we can to clear our names. Like, do the, you know... And I don't know. I just feel like, mm. well, then there was a guy named Joe Esterhaus, I believe, from the Rolling Stone magazine. And they uncovered some stuff that they were like, ho, 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 smoking gun. It's not true because there was a 24-hour manned shipyard booth at Ingalls and neither operator saw anything that night. And so they're like, if that came up, like if there were blue lights or anything like that, they would have saw something. Mm-hmm. However, Calvin said in an interview later that the operators came forward, like the police went over and talked to him, like, okay, like, did you see anything? Blah, blah, blah. And the guys were like, look, this is the paycheck. We weren't paying attention. We have recliners that we sit in. Damn. And they get radioed when, like, they were needed. Oh. <gasps> So oh. they didn't, like, man the booth 24 yeah. hours. Yeah. It was, yeah, someone's there 24 hours, but they're not on watch 24 hours. Gotcha. Dang, can you imagine being able to just hang out in a recliner at work? I want to. <laughs> and another thing is that the site was in range of Ingalls' security cameras, which didn't show anything that night. But, like, with all Supernatural stuff, it's like, I mean, if they have fucking technology to not make a fucking sound hovering two feet above the fucking ground, I think they could be cloaked in darkness or some Harry Potter wizardry shit. Yeah. You know? Pretty sure they have the capabilities to uh, scramble that footage and make it not look like it. Yeah. Like... Allegedly. Well, and it's 1973. So, like, how clear are those pixels there, sir? Uh, probably about three per frame. Yeah, like, okay. Later on, Charlie did say that he was like, you know, the aliens could have been like robots that were being controlled by someone else because they were very robotic, you know, but still like new age kind of sinister kind of stuff. Yeah. And then Calvin said that he was, he was like, look, they might not have been even aliens. They might have been demons. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what they were. They were not of this world. 
But he has since come back around and said, like, you know, he was super young and just, like, anything that wasn't, like, God-related was demons kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like. Much like every uh, ghost adventure type yeah. piece. <laughs> yes. Also, looking back, Calvin said that they could have been drugged by that robotic mechanical creature because he was, like, how I describe it, it's kind of like the date rape drug and stuff being paralyzed and... Through a hypnol. Yeah, and all of that. And also, when the police did an examination on their bodies and everything, they found two puncture holes, like, one in each person, and it was on their left arms. And it looked like, you know, something had injected in there, and they both remembered the sound of an injection, but... They can't remember, you know, so who knows? But about 45 years after the abduction incident, the city of Pascagoula added a historical marker on the banks where it all took place. And after seeing a news segment about that marker and the site, a lady came forward and said that she had some information that would give Calvin and Charles's story validation. On that same night in October 1973, there was this woman, Maria Blair, and she was waiting with her husband, Jerry Blair. He was about to leave on a boat to go offshore. She said the night was nice, like 73 degrees, so they were just enjoying their last few moments together before he leaves on his hitch. Well, like most men and myself, Jerry went to sleep while they waited. Well, Maria was looking up at the sky And she saw some blue lights streaking back and forth. And she said, you know, you're looking up at the sky. You're kind of looking like, oh, there's a Big Dipper, all of that. And then you see this like blue light that's not supposed to be there. And at the time she thought maybe it's a plane or a helicopter. And But she tells her husband like, hey, Jerry, wake up. And he's like, might be the military. I don't know, you know, but that's kind of weird. So they get out and kind of go see it a little bit because it's weird enough for him to wake up and be like, oh, shit, what is this, you know? Well, later on, when she heard their story, when it came out, the blue light was right over where they were abducted, like where she saw it on the river, because they're at the same river, just in different areas. Yeah. She said that she watched it move without any noticeable sound for about 30 minutes, which was about 40 minutes, how they said, and then it just vanished. And what she said was that they heard something in the water, like it fell into the water, like a loud splash, but the water was just kind of rippling. And she said at one time it looked like there was a person down there, but she didn't know You know, just kind of like, I don't know. Is it? Was it? This is weird. And if it's a military, like, (laughs) I didn't see anything. Don't know anything. Gotta go. And like, my husband's going offshore. Don't know anything. Bye. Not trying to get in any type of MK Ultra business. Right. Yeah. So she didn't think of anything else besides when Charlie and Calvin's story blew up from all the media stuff. Well, so she's she was like, oh, my God. Like, I was watching two men be abducted by a fucking UFO. Wow. Well, so she was like, look, I never talked about it to anyone but my family because Jerry was like, 
you fucking keep quiet because people are going to say you're crazy. And like, why? You don't get anything out of this. You don't even know those people. Like, whatever. And so she did until she couldn't any longer. You know? So, again, like, with their thing, it's like they didn't get anything out of it. Even though, yeah, it did Charlie. They both published books. But, I mean, nothing, you know, like, okay. But, like, they both held normal jobs. Like, their everyday life. Like, nothing came of it. And even Calvin said, like, he would pay Charlie's electric bill later on. Like, he still needed that much money. Like, so he didn't do it for fame and money and all of this. Right. You know? And, like, he was still doing it to that day, like, that he died and stuff. Like, so it wasn't like he did it and then, like, ah, shit, it didn't pay. I'm going to stop talking about it. Like, no, he was invested in it. So, kind of want to end on this. Because I just thought it was kind of funny. When all of this happened, there were hundreds of, like, hoaxes and, like, reports then and everything. Well, it got all so freaking bad that an Ocean Springs alderman proposed to have an ordinance that made it illegal to operate a UFO at more than twice the speed of light on US-90, which we know is the main drag on the coast. Are you kidding? No, but the mayor at the time, Tom Stennis, he voted against it and he joked he didn't want to discourage tourism. Shut up. No. Also, <laughs> anything to do with Stennis Space Center there? Probably. Uh, I wonder why he didn't want to... Uh, yeah, prevent things from flying uh-huh. in the air when you uh-huh. own a space center. <laughs> hmm... hmm. But, yeah, that is the Pascagoula abduction that I never knew fucking existed. Like, Pascagoula has some shit. It has seen some shit. Who knew that Pascagoula was this, like, national treasure down here in Mississippi? I had no idea. Of all these paranormal things. Right? Well, not all paranormal, I guess. Just, yeah. I don't know what you... I always just call all the stories that you do paranormal, but I'm like, but it's not just, like, ghosts and stuff. It's It's all the things that are... Weird, different, <laughs> not of this world. Yes. I don't know why I said it like that. Do, 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 do. Well, I definitely don't know what I believe. Yes, I do. It didn't happen. <laughs> 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 it does give it a little more credibility that two people experienced it at the same time. But then again, they could have just gotten their story straight, you know? Yeah. But who knows? I don't want to just be like, oh, it didn't happen. But also, it didn't happen, you know? Yeah. Well, here's my thing. Why them? Why that night? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, why does anything happen? True. Question. Uh Uh-huh. If you had an alien encounter, would you tell anybody? Girl, I can't keep a secret. That's true. Well, one, I'd be like, they fucking kicked me out of the fucking saucer. Because one, I'd be like, do you serve salsa on the saucer? Okay. Yes. Well, that's why they kicked you out mm-hmm. or would kick you out. And then I'd be like, anal probe, anyone? Anal probe? Th- well, okay. Also, I would talk in that voice, which would not turn them on. Here's the thing. They wouldn't even pick you up because they probably already hear you saying these things. Well, listen to the podcast because I don't want to be abducted. <laughs> <laughs> More of a reason for them to abduct you. Ooh. Well, I, your story was definitely not as heavy as mine. No. Yeah, I'm glad I planned that one because definitely needed, as you say, a palate cleanser from that heavy one. Yeah. 
Well, we want to know what y'all think about the aliens. We all know what you think about the assholes from my story, so. Right. But feel free to share your opinion. Yes. But yeah, do you believe in alien abductions or anything like that? I just, it feels like, for me, theirs seems believable because they're just like, Two people who went on their normal lives. And yeah, like, did he get to meet Johnny Carson and stuff? Yes. But the other one was, like, scared shitless and didn't want anything. But also, like, Charlie just, he was older. He's seen more shit, too. So it's like, he was still shaken up. But he, like, just took it more in stride, you know? Also, though, they weren't, like, they said we were the chosen ones. Yeah. And, like, they came here to, like, select us for blah, blah. You know, it wasn't like that, like, what you hear on all this shit that's, like, I'm so important. That's why they chose me. And right. it's just, like, fuck. Like, the fish were finally going to bite, you know? And, mm-hmm. and all of that. But, I mean, it hell, it could be a ruse for them to have covered up something else. You never know. True. But... Alien stuff wasn't big like it was after this. You know, it was like there had been a few encounters, but again, nothing really with the probing. Like there had been like one case, but nothing like what they had described. Aliens had never looked like they described before, you know, and it's not like they could just Google all of the stuff. Right. So it's like, I don't know. Because nowadays, if someone says, I was abducted by aliens, well, you could have read 20,000 books on it and watched YouTube videos and, hell, had, like, a, a fucking escape room of an alien spaceship that you did. Right. Like, but back then, it wasn't that. And it still holds up to how we feel about, like, the spaceships and, like, the bright lights and the no sounds and, like, just all of that. I don't know. I I want to believe. I just feel like if aliens are real, why have there not been more abductions? Like, okay, so now we're talking, that was in the 70s, 40 years, and it's still not this like, like they play in a long game. You know what I mean? But there have been several abductions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I know. I'm saying yes, but in the grand scheme of things, it's minute. It's like, 0.001% Point zero zero one percent of people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, I made those. The, I made that number up, by the way. Don't quote me. But the point is, is that in the fifty years that people have been reporting abductions, like, what kind of long game are they playing? Well, they might not want to come to our planet. They might just be getting stuff and doing it on their planet. It's not like we want to Earth. It's so great. Like, hell, they see COVID now, and they're like, I'm so glad we didn't take it, bitch. (laughs) True that, though. Thank y'all so much for listening and supporting us. Keep sending in your sinister sightings, aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. If you have time, please rate and review us on all the podcast platforms because it really helps us and all other podcasts that you listen to become more visible. And stay safe, y'all, on the COVID thing. Honestly. Yes, absolutely. Stuff is starting to open up this week here in America. So just continue to distance and wash your hands and wear your masks and all the things that they're telling us to do. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get get scared. scared.